Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thank you for your company. Now, ADH-TV is number three on the charts on the Apple App Store. Keep on downloading it onto your device or television. Just search ADH on your Apple TV App Store. There it is on your screen or the Google Play Store. And you can start watching everything live and on demand. You can never miss an episode. And you can listen when it suits you. And you can also listen to the show on podcasts. So wherever you listen to your podcasts, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, just search Alan Jones and the full program will be there. And it means you can listen when you're walking out there, when you're outside having a walk or in your car. And it's free. I'll speak tonight with the New South Wales One Nation leader, Mark Latham. Can you believe it? I raised this last night. We'll also talk about the energy thing, by the way. But we raised last night on the show that New South Wales secondary principles today have become a three-day co- begun a free three-day conference, gathering at a Wollongong hotel on the ocean, basically to talk woke nonsense. Now, the punter just shakes his head at this stuff. Can you remember the last time you went to a three-day conference at a beachfront hotel in Wollongong where you listened to presentations on finding your light and rekindling your internal flame? Well, I can't, because this isn't real-world stuff. Meanwhile, school results are virtually at rock bottom. These principals should be out there teaching. The education system in this country is a mess, a disgrace. Is the national curriculum the answer? Certainly not. I'll tell you what the answer is. Education ministers who have some intestinal fortitude and political courage to take on the teachers' federations and the other woke influences. In New South Wales, no such person exists except Mark Latham. You can forget Sarah Mitchell, the minister. Federally, we had Alan Tudge, who said he'd clean it up, and he didn't and couldn't. In Australia, like many other Western countries, the education system is riddled with Marxism. That is, the dumbing down of education to make children, our future generation, obedient to authoritarianism, reject capitalism and overthrow institutions which have stood the test of time. Is that not what the past decade or so of teaching has been about? How quick were they to adopt wearing masks and not question our political leaders over their disproportionate response to the past two years? Children marching in the streets with misspelt placards over the climate crisis, encouraged by their teachers. Gender theory and this idea that gender is non-binary. You can be whatever you want to be, despite your biological makeup. This is being taught in the classrooms. Critical race theory, where we encourage victimhood and lazily label anything you disagree with as racist. This is education in the 21st century. Who's going to put a stop to it? The problem is most teachers aren't academic high flyers themselves. The Australian Tertiary Admission Rank, or ATR, as it's called, that is the cut-off point for doing a teaching degree at university, is extraordinarily low. Sometimes people with below 50 get in. So this is a battle. And you tell me what you think. As parents, I'd love to hear from you. Email me, alanjones at adh.tv. Well, the Fair Work Commission President Ian Ross has announced the outcome of its annual wage review, 12 days after Labor recommended the independent body increase the pay of lowly paid Australians in line with the 5.1% inflation rate to ensure that the wages of the lowest paid don't go backwards. A lesser headline I might add today tells us that the Remuneration Tribunal has awarded all MPs from July 1 a 2.75% pay increase. Given the current circumstances we're in, especially on mistaken energy policy, you have to ask if MPs have earned it. Some of those ordinary MPs who never respond to your concerns are on, guess it, 217000 a year. But back to the Fair Work Commission, who have agreed not to a 5.1% increase, but a 5.2% increase. The ACTU pushed for 5.5%. Employers argued for between 2.5% and 3.2%. What this means is the minimum wage will be increased by $1.05 an hour to $21.38 an hour from $20.33 from July 1. Workers on award rates will also go up 4.6%, with a minimum $40 weekly increase, but 
only for workers below $869.60 a week. That is people on about 45,000 a year. They'll get another $40 a week. I think fair-minded Australians would say two things. We want people to be in work rather than on welfare. A minimum wage of $21.38 an hour could not be regarded as unreasonable. And an increase of $40 a week to someone on 45,000 a year or below it is equally, in my view, not unreasonable. In parts of Australia, especially capital cities like Sydney and Melbourne, living on 45,000 a year is an unenviable challenge. The real issue here is rarely addressed. You can only pay for wages out of profit. That is why unions should always be on the employer's side. You can't have a profitable employee without a profitable employer. If the unions now go mad and think this 5.2% has to go to all workers, independently of what they're currently being paid, then we would be heading for stagflation. That is high inflation, not much growth and high unemployment, where one bloke's pay increase becomes another man's job. There's a further issue here which won't get the attention it deserves. The new Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, is proposing to undertake a review of the Reserve Bank, the first such review in 30 years, long overdue. I believe the Reserve Bank Governor, Philip Lowe, should be out of a job. I repeat, I believe the Reserve Bank Governor, Philip Lowe, should be sacked. Much of the incoming inflation-driven economic pain is the result of woeful monetary policy, interest rate settings. It's as if Lowe and our Reserve Bank mob wanted to keep the party going with low interest rates indefinitely. We have a central bank, the Reserve Bank, whose mandate above all else is to secure the stability of the financial system. It is not their business to be arguing about climate change or equality. The record of the Governor, Dr Philip Lowe, does not pass muster. This is the bloke who only last November said, quote, it is still plausible that the first increase in the cash rate will not be before 2024. Unquote. He said last November, which is barely seven months ago, I find it difficult to understand why rate rises are being priced in the next year or in early 2023, unquote. But this same bloke is now saying that inflation's too high and tightening monetary policy, that is jacking up interest rates, will get inflation under control by early next year. Who would believe him? He said yesterday, quote, Australians need to be prepared for higher interest rates. But in November last year, he said, quote, it is still plausible that the first increase in the cash rate will not be before 2024. But yesterday, quote, it's unclear at the moment how far interest rates will need to go up, unquote. Does this bloke know what he's talking about? Yet Lowe said yesterday he expects the economy, quote, to grow pretty strongly over the next six, next six to 12 months, quote, people can be confident that the jobs will be there and that in this environment, people will keep spending, unquote. Well, that's all well and good, but we wouldn't be where we are today if this bloke hadn't mistakenly argued late last year. I repeat, I find it difficult to understand why rate rises are being priced in next year or in early 2023, unquote. Yet this bloke is saying yesterday that inflation's too high, monetary policy will have to be tightened to get it under control, that is, interest rates will have to go up, but... It is unclear, he said, at the moment, how far interest rates will need to go, unquote. But Australians need to be prepared for higher interest rates. Let me say what I've said many times. Where we are today is a direct consequence of failed monetary policy by a so-called independent reserve bank. The proof is in the language of the governor, the boss. If the new treasurer, Jim Chalmers, is fair dinkum about a review of the reserve bank long overdue, and the first in 30 years, now is the time to pull it on, right now. The way monetary policy has been conducted in this country, that is interest rates, in the last 12 months, the way that policy has been conducted and the extent to which the borrowing public have been rankly deceived by Lowe and the Reserve Bank, all of that is nothing more than a disgrace. The new government needs to take out a very big stick. Well, let's bring in the welcome voice of the One Nation leader in the New South Wales Parliament, Mark Latham. I've often said it is a great tragedy for Australia that this bloke most probably came to the leadership of the Federal Labor Party when he was too young. Now there is a universal view that this man, his insights and the thoroughness of his homework 
are very much needed today in the national debate. He joins us, Mark. Thank you for your time. Mark, for this current energy crisis, what is the relationship, in your view, between renewable energy and reliable energy? Well, uh, the renewables are forcing coal out. Uh, Alan, we've got to understand that the uh, crisis we've got now with the um, uh, threat of blackouts, pe people being told to turn their appliances off around this time of the evening and prices going through the roof, this is a deliberate policy. It's a deliberate policy of each and every state government to drive coal and gas out of the electricity market. And if you drive it out without a replacement, of course, this is what you get. You get a paucity of supply and, um, and, and, and the likelihood of blackouts at some stage in the winter. And of course, it'll be much worse in the coming summer if it's a hot summer. But what, what you need to understand is that um, Matt Keane's policy in New South Wales, for instance, of driving the coal-fired generators out, um, there's no incentive for the companies to do any maintenance on their units. So half, half the units are down at any one time. Yeah. So the companies yeah. think, oh, well, we're closing a RARing in three years' time, Liddell's going next year. Why spend a single dollar of maintenance Correct. on these units? So Correct. the units go down mm. and we haven't got the coal-fired power. So it's a deliberate policy. Yep. And on the flip side, where is the renewables miracle that we've been hearing about? Matt Keane said that prices in New South Wales, he said two years ago, electricity prices for households have come down by $130 a year, $430 for businesses. Now, that's just laughable. It's gone in the opposite direction. And um, we got some documents out of the upper house processes uh, just uh, two weeks ago that show that Keynes renewables won't be of any effect uh, by 2026 until the earliest. And the pumped hydro, which is supposed to keep the lights on when the uh, sun's not shining, the wind's not blowing, that's uh, earliest at 2027. And if you factor in the delays in bringing Snowy 2.0 into the grid uh, and the Hume link, um, which is still contentious, even, even Malcolm Turnbull's mother-in-law is complaining about the route of the Hume link <laughs> south of uh, Goulburn there, so uh, that'll be a good um, uh, Christmas lunch. But um, um, once the Hume link uh, is delayed and, and Snowy 2.0 is delayed, the um, data that we uncovered showed almost the inevitability of blackouts in 2026. Yeah. So this is a complete and utter shambles, but mm. as you've been saying, as I've been saying, Alan, also completely predictable. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I note, though, that currently they're saying gas is going to be the saviour, but gas is a fossil fuel. So if we're suddenly in love with fossil fuels, why not coal, which is cheaper than gas? Well, where is the gas? We've yeah. got the Talawara gas peaking yeah. plant in the Illawarra, massive opposition to the Curry plant that Angus Taylor tried to advance. That, that, that They haven't put a shovel in the ground for that, and, and Labor's got a crazy plan to start it all over again with 30% hydrogen. So even the gas, uh, in, in terms of electricity generation, there's not enough of it. And then you look at what's happened with um, gas supply. New South Wales, shamefully, is 5% gas self-sufficient. Yeah. Plenty of it in the ground, five-year yeah. delay for the approval of the Santos project at Narrabri. Mike Beard closed down the coal seam gas industry. We need all that gas right now. Yep. I mean, this could be playing a useful role. But if you keep the stuff in the ground as a deliberate policy and a deliberate policy of driving coal out of electricity generation, uh, this is the crisis that people have brought upon themselves. And we've seen that in Europe, haven't we? Germany and Britain now and others are reinstating coal-fired power. Uh, Mark, uh, where's this Greta Thunberg? She's very silent. <laughs> She's in hiding. Hey? She's in hiding with Tim Flannery and a few others. Yes. Uh, Alan, I wish they were all in, in hiding. But yeah. you mentioned Europe. The other big development is, is Britain. Boris Johnson bringing on as many small modular nuclear reactors as he can get his hands on. Uh, you need baseload power, reliable, mm. affordable, and it comes from coal, gas and, and nuclear. So that's the other tragedy Do you in think Australia. That even though, yeah, we can't yeah. even have a debate about it. Do you think the voters of New South Wales understand that in late 2020, the New South Wales government had the numbers keen to wave through this energy bill called the Electricity Infrastructure Investment Bill. And it's, it's about legislated 100% renewables. Now, at the time, New South Wales was sweltering and coal kept everyone going. Now, coal, again, is the answer. But this policy faced no scrutiny in the coalition party room. They just followed one another like sheep. And Keane said the new energy policy, as you just remarked, was about cheaper energy. And when asked whether it was controversial, he said there was nothing controversial about $58 billion of new investment energy, providing the cheapest and most reliable energy anywhere on the planet. Mark, where is it? 
Well, it's a disaster. It's part of the problem. Araring's closing early. Liddell's closing early. If Mike Cannon-Brooks gets hold of AGL, then uh, Bayswater coal-fired power station would close early. And, um, and what keeps the lights on? They haven't answered that fundamental question. The pumped hydro is not happening. Uh, the gas peaking plant, the, the greenies are against that. Um, the batteries don't generate electricity themselves. There's nothing to keep the lights on. And, Alan, unfortunately, we ain't seen anything yet. I no. mean, once you get a hot summer yeah. and summer demand for electricity, mm. it, it will put this winter well, into the shade. Well, just talk about... So, high, uh, sorry. sorry, Mark. It just can talk, get a lot worse. Just talking about this hydro. Now, in that bill, and subsequently talked about hydro mapping information and a pumped hydro would be essential to store electricity to back up green energy zones. And you said at the time that the sites for pumped hydro included dry gullies and water tanks and that mapping information provided by the ANU researchers included a disclaimer that, quote, none of the sites discussed in this study have been the subject of geological, hydrological, environmental, heritage and other studies, and it's not known whether any particular site would be suitable. Mark, has any of this changed? No, not at all. And the documents we got two weeks ago showed that there's no viability for pumped hydro in New South Wales and nothing, not even a shovel in the ground, will happen in the next five years. Um, and, and then the document from Keane's Chief Energy Advisor, James Hay, talks about construction risks. Well, the construction risks are twofold, Alan. One is that all those sites that they've talked about, nobody's gone and personally looked at them. It's all done off computer desktop. And the second construction risk, of course, the pumped hydro, which has a dam at the top of the of the hill and a dam at the bottom. In New South Wales, we haven't built a new dam in 30 years. And you can be guaranteed the Greens will find a speckled purple-headed frog uh, somewhere at, near any of these sites. So the likelihood of building dozens of dams for pumped hydro when we haven't built a single one in three decades in New South Wales is very remote indeed. So all of this is pie in the sky. It, 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 it was rhetoric that Keane advanced. And in the parliament, it was supported by the Liberals, the Nationals, the Greens and the Labor Party. Amazing. And 135 MPs in the New South Wales parliament, only two One Nation and two Shooter MPs voted against the Keane madness. And the madness was, in 2020, promising to change the entire electricity system and there was no business case. No, and um, we're yet to see the uh, modelling and the, the full documentation. I, I think the figures about a price reduction that I mentioned earlier on, they were just made up. Uh, they were just invented for a, a press release. You know, Matt Keane, unfortunately, he's not a serious public policy person. He lives in the media cycle from day to day and uh, his lies catch up with him. And um, what he's done with electricity, uh, it's only going to get worse. That's the sad story. And you know, turning it around, it's like trying to turn the Queen Mary yes. on a five-cent piece. Yes. You can't do it. I've a long lead time Quite. to get baseload reliable power back into the grid. And if the renewables were available, which they're not, Keane's got to find storage, transmission to the grid, and then keep prices down. None of those is achievable. Well, the uh, transmission, uh, I mentioned the dispute about the Humlink, which would uh, take Snowy 2.0 to the uh, connector at uh, Goulburn. Even Malcolm Turnbull's mother-in-law is opposed to it. So yeah. you get local residents, often with justification, uh, opposed to these things. But, Alan, it's also incredibly expensive. Whenever anyone says renewables are cheap, just laugh in their face because the, the, the cost of the transmission and the backup power yeah. is never factored in. Mm. Uh, Albanese has an election commitment, and this is the minimum amount of spending $20 billion yeah. on new transmission-wise because the uh, solar and wind farms are mostly in the West of New South Wales, so you've got to hook them up with these enormous uh, transmission wires. And, and Keane just last week announced uh, uh, billions extra in New South Wales. Now, this is all expenditure that could go into baseload power from nuclear coal or gas, yeah. but instead we've got these intermittent uh, renewables. Uh, they don't operate 24-7. They're, they're not happening with, with no sun and no wind, and uh, we're spending huge amounts of money to hook up through transmission uh, a substandard power system right. when we had a perfectly good one in the first place. And the, perfect, the perfectly good one is that we export $70 billion worth of coal, but politicians are too cowardly to use it here for cheap energy. Mark, before we go, we're always running out of time. I just want to raise this education question. I mean, there's a massive teacher shortage in New South Wales. The results in the classroom don't bear comparison with those of overseas countries. One in five teenagers' boys is illiterate. 
Over 20% of boys, as I said last night, and 10% of the girls can't punctuate sentences. They can't spell simple words, write a story in paragraphs. Between 36 and 46% of teachers are teaching subjects in which they've got no special skill. A quarter of the maths teachers have no training in maths. This is according to an Australian teacher workforce survey last year, 18,000 teachers. 20% of science teachers have no training in science. Mark, are teachers still on full pay, but because they're not vaccinated, they're at home doing nothing? Yeah, this is the latest piece of genius from the New South Wales Education Department. There's nearly 400 teachers not vaccinated who could be in front of a classroom who are on what you call gardening leave. They're being paid just to stay at home with no duties, uh, no work, no students. So we need them desperately in the classroom. Didn't we need the Premier 9,000 Perrottet say he wanted them in the classroom? Yeah, he said he spoke to the secretary's board. He spoke to the secretary of the education department and said, get these teachers back teaching. But she said no. Well, you might as well make her the premier out. You know, who's running the state? When a bureaucrat unelected can be calling the shots. It's like what happened with Kerry Chant and health yep. advice. Uh, if you want weak leadership among your politicians, well, the bureaucrats have a picnic Absolutely. and unfortunately the public interest suffers. Just before you go, there's currently a conference going on in Wollongong. The theme will be phosphorescence. Teachers will listen to presentations on finding your light and rekindling your internal flame. And the left-wing journalist Julia Baird will encourage school principals who are attending to keep placing one foot on the earth, then the other to seek out ancient paths and forests, certain in the knowledge that others have endured before us. Mark, when will the voter and the parent wake up that they're being dudded? Well, dudded massively. These are high school principals who should be at their schools dealing with the teacher shortage crisis. And if need be, get in front of the classroom themselves yeah. and do some teaching. Yeah. I mean, that's a good solution for the principals to um, uh, get back on the job mm. and fill the gaps. Instead, yeah. they're wasting their time at North Wollongong there on the coast with this rubbish. It's like a hippie commune from Nimbin playing around with crystals <laughs> and kumbaya. It's completely laughable. And you look at the speakers, Alan, the sad thing is none of them have got anything to do with education. No. Two from the ABC, a couple on mental health and someone who's a poet. Sorry. New South Wales, 15-year-olds, I mean, and, and, and you mentioned some of the data early on. Let me just put in another one, I think the worst figure. New South Wales 15-year-olds are four years behind their Shanghai equivalents in, in, in China, four there years behind in math, three are. and a half years behind in science, mm. and they're down there at North Wollongong um, uh, singing Kumbaya. I mean, it's just absolutely, absolutely pathetic. Good on you, Mark. Always wonderful to talk. Thank you for the homework you do. Thank you for the insights. Talk next week, eh? There he is, Mark Thanks, Latham, who leads One Nation in the New South Wales Parliament. I think we need about 150 Mark Lathams, don't we? Look, one of the truisms of political life seems to be the vanity of politicians. Once they get there, they can't be told anything. There are many comments made about Scott Morrison's prime ministership. One common theme is he knew everything. He couldn't be told. Josh Frydenberg is in the political wilderness. He couldn't be told that the way forward in politics is for your colleagues to see that you are loyal on the one hand, which Josh is, but an independent thinker on the other. Josh Frydenberg is not the only person sitting on the coalition side of parliament for years who knows that this net zero nonsense is an economic suicide note. So why were we trotting off to Glasgow to rubber stamp Labor policy, remembering that even though Labor are in government, seven out of 10 Australians didn't vote for them. Josh Frydenberg wasn't the only person to know that paying everybody $750 a week during the pandemic was an extravagant, unaffordable and ill-thought-out policy. Britain, not without its own stupidity, embraced the furlough policy, where workers are temporarily laid off but paid. But they were paid 75 to 80% of what they were earning prior to their being laid off during the pandemic. 75% of the casual on 600 bucks a week would be $450 but Morrison and Frydenberg gave them 750. And here we are with a trillion dollars plus of debt. I was rubbished by supporters of the Morrison government when I spoke to the federal Labor member for the Canberra seat of Fenner, Andrew Lee, a former professor of economics at ANU with a PhD in public policy from Harvard, a graduate of the University of Sydney with first class honors in arts and law and a fellow of the Australian Academy of Social Sciences. He doesn't make it very highly in the pecking order of the Albanese government because he's not factionally aligned. He and I discussed on air the JobKeeper payments made to businesses who would otherwise have to lay off staff due to the economic impact of the pandemic. 
the total cost of JobKeeper, about $90 billion, $90,000 million to receive the payment the businesses and not-for-profit organisations had to demonstrate or forecast a particular shortfall in revenue. Andrew Lee, with a splendid mind, argued that $13 billion, $13,000 million in payments, according to an analysis by the Parliamentary Budget Office, went to firms which increased their revenue, went to firms which increased their turnover, went to profitable overseas-owned companies, leading to tens of millions of dollars, perhaps hundreds of millions of your dollars going to offshore owners. I quoted at the time the Australian economist and historian Ludwig von Mies, who famously said, I'd hoped to be the agent of reform, but it turned out I was merely the chronicler of decline. Well, decline indeed. The government didn't ask for the money back. Take a company you know a bit about, like Louis Vuitton, which reportedly received $6 million in JobKeeper, but increased the dividend paid to its overseas owner, LVMH, by $6.5 million. The majority shareholder in LVMH is reportedly a Frenchman, Bernard Arnault, at one point in 2020, the richest man in the world. Professor Judith Sloan, who talks since in simple language, said at the time, and I quote, the wildly expensive JobKeeper will rank as the single most irresponsible and reckless spending program ever undertaken by a government, unquote. Treasury at the time published a report that 15% of JobKeeper was being paid to firms with rising revenues. Josh Frydenberg, in his first speech to the parliament, because in all of these things, you couldn't tell the government. They knew everything. You couldn't warn them. Yet Josh Frydenberg, in his first speech to the Parliament, said, what I know is true, Frydenberg, and I quote him, we must always remember that whenever we create a new arm of bureaucracy or expand the field of activity, we're not spending our own money. We're spending the money of our citizens who look to us as the guardians of their wealth, unquote. Where does JobKeeper fit into that philosophical statement? The reality is in politics, vanity takes over from truth. These people believe in their infallibility. I can't recall a single thing that Trent Zimmerman, huh, you ever heard of him? The former member for North Sydney did during seven years in the parliament. Recognise that face? <laughs> in a piece he wrote at the weekend, confirming the vanity of these people, he said, perhaps the biggest adjustment in becoming an MP is the loss of anonymity, unquote. Mr Zimmerman, you could walk down any street in Australia and they wouldn't know who you are. But the trouble with these people is once elected, vanity takes over, they believe they're bulletproof and the voters are forgotten. The political reality is the voters are the masters. These people are merely highly paid servants. And on May 21, the masters spoke. It's called the great triumph of democracy. Well, let's go to Britain, where David Maddox is the political editor of The Express Online. You can read David. He writes splendidly at express.co.uk. David, thank you for your time again. Just a quick one on Prince Always William. A, uh, a quick one on Prince William. Is it true that after appearing in military uniform for the Jubilee celebrations, he turned up in informal attire in central London to sell a copy of The Big Issue, which helps the homeless? That's right, yes. Yeah, much to everybody's surprise, there's no kind of trail or anything. The first we kind of heard about it was uh, a lot of people posting selfies with him on uh, <laughs> on social media. So, uh, uh, yeah, kind of good on him, really. It highlighted his charity work. Yes, he's the patron. He is the patron of the homeless charity Centre Point, actually. And in 2009, yeah. I might add, Prince William spent a night sleeping rough to better understand the plight of those without shelter at Christmas time. Now, David, to the Archbishop of Canterbury. Is this a major story on the Archbishop <laughs> of Canterbury? It's not a laughing matter. Where Conservative MPs have demanded that the Archbishop, Justin Welby, give up both his palaces to house illegal migrants and use his personal wealth to pay for their needs, which is a reaction to the Archbishop describing the deportation of illegal migrants as immoral. 
Now, you're making the point, are you not, that left-wing activist lawyers are trying to block the first deportation flight to Rwanda this week of people who illegally entered Britain after crossing the English Channel on small boats. And ministers have confirmed, for the benefit of our viewers, that the cost of housing asylum seekers is £4.7 million a day, £1.7 billion a, a year. A week. A week, is it? Right. Yeah. So anyway, they're saying yeah. Yeah. that it'd fund, what, 5,000 nurses, more than 50 new schools or a few destroyers to protect Britain's waters. Where is this argument now? Well, we, we, in fact, we've just had developments in the uh, literally in the last few hours. Uh, the lawyers finally, after uh, maybe the fifth or sixth attempt, have actually managed to block the flight to Rwanda. And uh, basically, uh, they, they couldn't do it in the British courts, so they went to uh, the European Court of Human Rights on the continent, where the lawyer didn't even have a proper hearing. He just blocked the flight, uh, which is opened up a whole new debate here about foreign courts because... Yeah, I mean, I thought Brexit... I thought Brexit was about having British people governed by British law. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's what we all thought. And we're still we're still tied to the uh, European... Uh, the European Court of Human Rights, which is, uh, I should say, separate to the European Union, but it's, uh, it's ludicrous. I mean, the judge didn't even have an oral... Hearing, he just uh, uh, heard some uh, heard some uh, complaints from the uh, lawyers, the left wing activist lawyers, I should say, uh, working for these uh, uh, illegal immigrants, and uh, shut down the operation. So uh, we're going back to court. Of course, this is costing the taxpayer even more money. Uh, we're, you know, we uh, essentially have a. Uh, you know, the, the left in this country and the archbishops and bishops, the dreadful people who get an automatic seat in our parliament for some bizarre reason. I know. Kind of basically supporting a business model that funds terrorism and organised crime and prostitution and things and, uh, you know, brings people over here to work in sweatshops. I, I don't know what's moral about that. But, Absolutely. You know, You're obviously, saying... <laughs> uh, obviously, the Archbishop has a direct line to God. <laughs> You're saying the Archbishop of Canterbury has been dubbed the world's richest religious leader. Did he make money in a previous mm. life working in the oil industry? He, he, he did. He did. Uh, he comes from a very well-to-do family as well. His, uh, his mother was Churchill's secretary, his... Uh, 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 was uh, was actually uh, the um, sister of an aristocratic cabinet member in his uh, in Churchill's government, Rab Butler, and uh, yeah, and he he made his fortune in the oil industry. Not that you'd believe it now, because of course he's uh, like all wokeists, uh, embracing the net zero thing and trying to force the rest of us to. Uh, you know, spend a fortune on upgrading our houses with, oh, with heating systems which what don't a mess. work and things I mean, like that. I mean, but, you know, but he, he's kind of... He, he is uh, a perfect example of the kind of very kind of wealthy liberal elite uh, preaching down to the rest of us, uh, completely out of touch. And, you know, yeah. as I said in the article, uh, with his two palaces, one in Canterbury and one in... Uh, one just across the river from... Uh, from Parliament, Lambeth Palace. And there, he has said, this Archbishop of Canterbury, and I quote, deportations and the potential forced return of asylum seekers to their home countries are immoral and shame us as a nation, which, of course, is good left-wing bleeding-heart stuff. So Conservatives, David, mm. are saying, well, give up your two palaces, house the illegal migrants yep. and use your personal wealth to pay for them. Or, as the Ashfield yep. MP, Lee Anderson, said, if the Archbishop of Canterbury truly believes that we should do more to keep illegal immigrants in this country and love thy neighbour as thyself, then perhaps he should give up his two palaces and pay for all the accommodation costs. He can then instruct every church in the UK and their vicarages be given up to illegal immigrants to stay in. These are practical measures he could take to ensure the great British public that the church is doing all it can in these difficult times. David, not a bad argument. Oh, it's a great argument. Lee Anderson's an interesting guy. He, his next miner used to be a trade unionist, used to be a Labour Party activist for many, many years. And 
suddenly saw the light when he realised he was <laughs> surrounded by anti-patriotic wokists who generally hated their country and hated the communities they were supposed to represent, and he became a, a conservative. He is now one of the most outspoken of the what we call red wall MPs in the former Labour constituencies. But he's absolutely bang on the money, as he often is. You know, these uh, uh, these wealthy people, yeah. like the uh, like the Archbishop of Canterbury. Yeah. You know, the, the Church of England has uh, something like forty palaces, these enormous buildings. Well, you know, if if they, if they want to pontificate to the rest of us, uh, do your bit. Yes. Open them up. <laughs> I and, see that uh, Brendan know. Brendan Clark Smith, who's another MP, said, if anybody else performed as poorly in their jobs as the last two archbishops, they'd be sacked. And Mr Clark Smith made mm. the interesting point, did he not, that if fewer than 15% of the population in England is now Anglican, why does the Church of England yeah. have over 26 bishops in the House of Lords? Uh, David, mind you, Prince Charles has also attacked the Rwanda plan. What palace is he being asked to give up? Oh, God. Well, he should be uh, he should be giving up a, a couple of them, I would say. You know, I mean, this is uh, actually Pr Prince Charles's intervention is quite serious because uh, if it, we're doing a poll on it this weekend because you know after the great work uh, we were celebrating it last week with a jubilee, the great work of his mother staying out of politics, being a unifying figure, being a great head of state. You know, he's uh, he's really threatening the future of the monarchy in mm. this country by going okay. after these sorts of policies and things. Clark, I mean, actually, he's attacking the very people who support the monarchy, ironically. Quite. So, Just yeah. back to Clark Smith, because our viewers will be interested in this. He described, and this is true here in Australia, the vocal critics of the Rwanda policy as, quote, members of elite society who've never had to live with mm. the consequences of uncontrolled illegal immigration. And that's exactly it, isn't it? I mean, many of these people just purge the guilt they feel out of unearned income and then join the woke brigade. Is that not true? That is true. That is very true. And, and actually, you know, you see, you see it so much. All the, all the most prominent voices against these, uh, against these measures always coming from the wealthy yep, kind of yep. liberal elite yep. type always it's, Absolutely. It's, it's a you know many of the lawyers themselves actually come from those families yep. uh, it's uh it really is quite shameful actually it, it and, is shameful uh, you know the, the people i mean i look at where i live i live in east london and i don't live in a, uh, a posh part of london at all you know literally in my street there are households with 20 or 30 people packed into them which uh, because of the poverty that mass migration causes. Yes. And uh, it, it's, uh, you know, you see the criminal, the organised gangs and things like that. You know, and all these critics of policies like this are all kind of cushioned from it. They live in nice areas, uh, big houses, big palaces, you know. Yes. And, uh, yep. you know, they don't have yep. to. They don't e have to wait easy, weeks with easy to have appointment and... Easy yeah. to have those views when you can afford to have them. Just a quick one before you go, though, on the energy crisis. As here, mm. David, energy costs over there for you are skyrocketing around the country along with the cost of living. Your Chancellor, mm. talking about blokes who've got a quid, he's not sure to quit himself, uh, Rishi Sunak, with the, billionaire, <laughs> with the billionaire wife, <laughs> has said that each household <laughs> will get £400 off their energy bills. The only problem is the typical energy bill is set to rise by £800 per household yeah. in October. Now, where are you on that? How bad is the crisis? Over here in Australia, they're warning us that the lights might go out and we've got to save on energy and so on because we've demonised coal-fired power. Well, we, we, we have a problem. I mean, we could bring, we could bring uh, energy prices come crashing down and make it affordable for everybody if we just use the gas that's in yep. our land would do some fracking, use the gas that's in the North Sea, just off Scotland and, uh, and the east of England. But, uh, of course, you know, the wokists who run the country won't, uh, won't let us. And uh, instead, we're amazingly, uh, we're importing it from Russia until recently, mm. which, uh, uh, you know, helping fund Putin in his war. I mean, the whole thing is mad. Madness. And, uh, it, and, and it's, uh, you know, it's getting out of control. The inflation on, on energy bills, on food, all sorts of things. In fact, I did a story uh, a couple of days ago about uh, how it's hitting the taxpayer in my pocket because the uh, the 
cost of energy heating prisons and lighting for prisons has gone up 25%. And you can imagine that's uh, that's been repeated mm. also uh, across the public sector. And the, tax, is the taxpayer has else. to pay for that. Yeah. Taxpayer pays. Exactly. See, David, exactly. David, just before you yeah. go, I keep saying, and tell me where you are in Europe here, I keep saying you can have renewable energy or reliable energy. You can't have both. Yeah. I completely agree with you. And actually, the, the, uh, the one thing the government's doing, which I think is uh, is the right thing, but, you know, if they fall, we, it'll stop, mm. is, is, the, uh, is nuclear energy. Nuclear, absolutely. If you want clean, yep. if you want clean yep. electricity that's reliable, then you go yep. for nuclear energy. OK, that's, now listen. That's your only choice. I'll let you go to go and knock on the door of the Archbishop of Canterbury. Keep up the campaign. <laughs> hey, keep it up. Keep it up. Yeah. You're spot on. And I'll tell you what, the people of Britain will be right behind you, David. Talk to you next week. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Alan. OK, there he is. David cheers, Ma cheers. Yeah, David Maddox. Makes a lot of sense, doesn't he? And just to, I didn't get a chance to ask him about Boris, but it does appear Boris is still there at least for another week. David Maddox, we'll talk to him next week from Britain. Now, look, Anthony Albanese has made an excellent start in his new role as Prime Minister, but to be frank, he's yet to be tested. Some of his language, though, is disturbing. That is, he said he won't waste a single day as he seeks to change Australia and, quote, end the climate wars, unquote. He needs to understand now that the government has changed hands, Australians have got, Australians have got their wits about them. Two points should be made. Seven out of ten Australians, when they voted, voted for parties other than the Labor Party. So Albo shouldn't assume that his party in government represents the wishes of the majority of Australians. He is there because of this ludicrous compulsory preferential voting system. There should be no assumption from anyone in the Labor government that they can impose their ideological values on us. My friends across the ditch lament to me, lament to me often in correspondence, the damaging direction in which Prime Minister Ardern has taken New Zealand. I'm not seeking to limit the achievements of Anthony Albanese, far from it. He'll get a fair go here. But it is valid to note that he was a former hard-left leader of Young Labor, just as Ardern in New Zealand was once the former international socialist youth leader. It would appear that only the voting system may get Ardern over the line next time, and even then the polls suggest she's in trouble. Neither New Zealand nor Australia will tolerate being dragged to the left. Yet here we already have an assistant minister for the Republic, are we going to waste endless time and energy on propaganda about a republic when all sorts of crises confront us? Are we going to create cultural divisions within our country and our legal systems by an ill-defined voice in the Constitution? Rightly or wrongly, this is divisive stuff. Are we going to perpetuate in the minds of our young that they're living on stolen land? This stuff won't wash. And then there's our education system, about which Morrison and co did absolutely nothing. As one writer said, Morrison, quote, took the coward's approach and refused to defend even the most basic conservative principles. How much longer will our nation accept our children being brainwashed with left-wing propaganda on socialism, climate change and white guilt? It's not helped when people like Little Proud, promoted way beyond his ability, persists with this net zero rubbish. Which brings me to the issue I raised yesterday about the likelihood of blackouts and people living without basic creature comforts because of an energy crisis that many of us warned about years ago. It was Matt Canavan who said during the election campaign that net zero was, quote, a failed agenda. And of course, he was rubbished. Who is right now? Yet there's no evidence that the Albanese government or the Matt Keynes of this world are prepared to reconsider. One of my very bright correspondents is Viv who wrote to me yesterday and said, and I quote, Australia's new ALP government has gigantic green energy plans to be funded by electricity consumers and taxpayers. The government promises with a straight face that Australia's electricity will be 82% renewable by 2030. They predict a 43% reduction in emissions and quote, on track for net zero by 2050. As he says, they've threatened to litter the landscape with 400 community batteries, 85 solar banks, and a $20 billion expansion of the electricity grid. He says this gigantic green electricity plan will need at least 150 million 
Chinese solar panels covering outback kingdoms of land, plus thousands of bird slicing, metal-hungry wind turbines, plus never-ending roads and power lines not friendly to grass or trees, and with no room for native birds, bees, bats or marsupials. Not green at all, writes Viv. He writes that with enthusiastic support in the new parliament for climatists, net zeros, teals and greens, but very few engineers, he says, quote, we can expect a disorderly rush to plaster a mass of electrical machinery and appliances all over the face of Australia. They'll also promote more demand for electricity, for electric cars, many seeking overnight charging, despite having zero solar power and inter intermittent wind power at night. So he says, we need giant fire-prone batteries to recharge small fire-prone batteries. When there's no sun on a single solar panel for 12 hours, no one notices. When all wind turbines sit idle under a slow-moving winter high, no one cares. But when one ageing, under-maintained coal plant falters, we notice. When three coal generators fail, we have a power crisis. Yet we've got green millionaires urging quicker closure of our few remaining 24-7 coal-powered generators. The ALP Green Teal Plan will clutter the countryside with solar panels, wind turbines, transmission lines, access roads, some bitumen, giant batteries and fire-prone national parks. Eastern Australia, he writes, recently had several very windy days, which caused many blackouts as trees and power lines were blown down. Imagine the outages and repair costs after a cyclone slices through this continent-wide spider web of fragile power lines connecting millions of wind and solar generators, fire-prone batteries and diverse markets. He says, picture the green energy network after the next big flood or bushfire. Europeans, he writes sensibly, can pretend to run a modern society with intermittent energy from windmills and sunbeams because they have lifelines to reliable energy from French nuclear, Scandinavian hydro, Polish and German coal, Iceland geothermal, North Sea natural gas, and sometimes Russian gas, oil and coal. Australia, he writes, has no extension cord to neighbours with reliable energy. We are on our own. We can have renewable energy, or reliable energy, but not both." Unquote. One of my viewers, Viv, we thank the Lord and any other deity that we still have sensible people who'd buy and sell the intellectual quotient of those in Parliament who are taking us towards a major economic disaster, if we're not there already. Well, before we go, the Albanese government is going to be pushing stuff uphill for many, many years. That's why the public and commentariat must strongly reject this sideshow alley stuff of Australia becoming a republic or a First Nations ambassador, a constitutionally enshrined Indigenous voice to Parliament and all this other self-indulgent nonsense. But my hunch is they won't. They can't help themselves. There was a big song and dance the first time Anthony Albanese had a press conference when he positioned the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags behind him. And now in the midst of blackouts and power shortages, his climate change and energy minister, Chris Bowen, is still living in a parallel universe. Chris, when you come back to Earth, let's know and you can come in here for an interview and we can talk realistically about the energy crisis. The rubber, Chris, has hit the road. And all this bloke can do is ask Australians to please turn off your pool lights to conserve power. Are you serious? There's plenty there for Peter Dutton to go after, but he faces his own battles. I was at a function last night with many Liberal Party people who say his deputy Susan Lee was a useless minister and as environment minister couldn't be stuffed working on issues. In other words, she's a handbrake. And forget the National Party under Little Proud, they may as well pack up shop and start writing their political obituary now. Little Proud will preside over the burial. Once a grand and noble party filled with experienced and quality people, it's now descended into ignoring the will of its electorate. So the electorate will ignore them. Professor James Allen, to whom I often speak, has plenty of ideas on how the new opposition leader, Peter Dutton, can claw back support. And that is to channel the popular governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. 
For anyone who doesn't know DeSantis, he just scraped through to get elected. But now, because of his libertarian approach to governing and shaking off the bureaucrats, his ratings are through the roof. He could be governor of Florida for as long as he likes. As James Allen alludes, DeSantis is politically brave, which is something Peter Dutton must become. Policies like nuclear energy, go for it. Use this energy crisis to begin the discussion and wedge Labor. Explain to Australians why we need this now. James Allen says that Dutton and his team mustn't take their cues from focus groups where you, quote, see what the current view is and then cater to it by parking yourself an inch to the right of the lefties, unquote. Instead, he argues, be like Ron DeSantis and stand up for your core principles and convince voters. Professor Allen highlights another trait which Peter Dutton should immediately adopt, and I might add, did as Defence Minister, reject outright any wokery or virtue signalling. Now, viewers might remember that DeSantis was infuriated with the Disney company's woke virtue signalling criticism of a DeSantis Florida law that rightly removed all sex education from the classroom for kids from kindergarten to year three. Disney, of course, used to get their own way. But in criticising the DeSantis legislation, they pulled the wrong rein. DeSantis pushed through a law that took away Disney World's special legislative privileges in the state of Florida. The result, a tens of millions of dollars per year loss for Disney. Great stuff. As a result, the DeSantis popularity climbed even further. And that's how it's done. The Liberal Party must channel their libertarian and conservative instincts and reject outright the rubbish that, inf was in that inflicted upon them a massive defeat on May 21. Now, there are serious problems at hand, and we talked about them. Energy, aged care, the cost of living, petrol, grocery prices, inflation, housing shortages. The public can do, therefore, without the wokery that Labor have displayed, and the public have sensed that already. That's it from me. I'll see you tomorrow night on ADH TV. Good night.